This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. Today I am joined by consultant psychiatrist Dr Sasha Evans, who is talking to me about mood disorders in children and young people. This topic comes under the RCPCH curriculum in the section of Behavioural Medicine and Psychiatry. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much, Dr Evans, for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. Can I start by asking, what would you like people to get out of this podcast? Okay, so I thought about three different things. So the first thing was to increase the understanding of mental health conditions, which are seen in children and young people. And then also, secondly, hopefully to reduce some of the anxiety and the stigma around these presentations. And then also to improve the cross-specialty working, so across the paediatrics and mental health teams. We're talking today about mood disorders. What do we mean when we talk about mood disorders? What range of conditions does this term encompass? So I guess mood disorders encompasses lots of things and we all probably have our own perspective on what a mood disorder is, particularly at the moment when well-being and mental health is so much in the media. I guess if I think about it from a psychiatric perspective, then if we think about depression, we're thinking about sadness or low mood, which is relatively persistent, which has lasted for at least two weeks, sort of around two to four weeks. And we're thinking about changes in mood, thinking and activity levels. And we want to know that it's impairing or affecting a child's activities or normal behaviours and, and likely to be causing some level of distress or or impacting either personal or social functioning. And then if we talk about anxiety, again, anxiety is, is a tricky one because we all experience fears and that's quite a common life experience. It's something that we all understand about. But if we're thinking about anxiety from a clinical perspective, again, we're thinking about something which is impacting a child or young person's functioning. So we're thinking about fears or worries that are really out of proportion with what we would think of as the as the sort of like thing which is causing the anxiety. And for anxiety, if we're seeing it in a clinical context, it's usually there all of the time. And again, having quite a disabling impact. And then if we think about psychosis, which we wouldn't necessarily think of as a traditional mood disorder, we sometimes see mood disturbance along with psychosis. Psychosis is characterized by hallucinations or delusions. And often we're seeing changes in somebody's perceptions or thoughts. And again, that can impact their behavior significantly. And psychosis really has a massive impact on the person's life and really can impact their relationships, their functioning, and also their, their physical health. That's a really good overview of the conditions. How common are these conditions in children and young people? I mean, in terms of general mental health conditions. I mean, I think it's almost impossible to have missed the fact that there's been a massive increase over the past few years 
there's been a couple of surveys which have done post-pandemic, which have looked at rates of probable mental disorder, so not actual mental health diagnoses. And we know that they've gone up from, they were one in nine in 2017. And in 2021, there was an increase to one in six. So they're highly prevalent and have probably got worse since the pandemic. If we think about the separate mental health conditions, say depression, pre-puberty affects about 1% of children and post-puberty affects about 3% of children. And the exact rate in five to 19 year olds is 2.1%. Anxiety is really dependent on which which type of anxiety we're looking at. So the the range is quite large. So it's between five and 15%, depending on which diagnosis we're looking at. But anxiety is the, the most common mental health disorder that we see. And then psychosis is it's relatively uncommon in children and, and young people, particularly in that under 13 age group, it only affects one to two in a thousand. And it, it gets steadily more prevalent in the over 15s. So it's around one to two percent in that in that age group and gets higher as you tend towards adulthood. And you mentioned a bit there about how the rates of particularly depression and anxiety have increased in the last five years or so. Do you think this is a true increase and that these disorders are becoming more common? Do you think that it's just that we're becoming better at diagnosing them and looking out for signs or do you think it's a combination of both it's a really good question I think it's a I think it's complicated and the risk factors for for mental health diagnosis are really complex and and multifactorial I think it's a combination of a number of things I think our awareness of mental health and our mental health literacy has increased. So I think particularly children and young people are better able to articulate their distress and their feelings. And I think we're talking about it more, but I think there's also been the pandemic, which I think there's lots of research coming out, which has shown that that had quite a detrimental effect on young people's mental health. And I think that's down to a number of factors So loss of structure, loss of school, not being able to see friends and loneliness, the social isolation. I think all of those things have contributed to that increase in in number. But again, it's nuanced because there are some children who actually did better during the pandemic because they didn't have to go to school. So they maybe weren't bullied or, 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 you know, they have social communication disorders and actually they didn't have the stress of going to school. So I think... With mental health disorders, it's quite complicated and there's probably no one single answer. I think we probably are getting better at diagnosing and that increase of awareness and and language means that we are better able to diagnose as well. And then you just mentioned that actually the risk factors for these disorders are really, really complex. So maybe you can guess what my next question is going to be, but could you talk a bit more about the risk factors and Whilst it is complex, do you have a kind of way of thinking about the risk factors or uh, approaching risk factors for mood disorders in children? Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit traditional, actually, in the way I approach your mental health assessments in that I tend to do quite a traditional biopsychosocial assessment. And I think it's kind of helpful to think about biological, psychological and social factors. And one of the things that we we know about a lot of mental health problems is that they run in families. Anxiety, we often see running in families, which may be a nature thing, maybe a nurture 
thing. So there's often kind of like familial history that we that we need to get get a hold of. But there's also kind of social factors, like we are learning more about how inequality has a massive impact on people's mental health. We know that, that there's a, an issue around racism because, you know, black people are more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act. So it's it's really quite nuanced in terms of like the societal risk factors. I guess the other thing that we always think about are abuse and neglect, which can have a massive impact on on young people's mental health. So we always ask about difficulties in the family and whether there have been any incidents of abuse or, or neglect. And as I mentioned earlier, we're starting to learn a lot more about things like the impact of loneliness and and bullying, which can be really detrimental to people's well-being and mental health. So it's kind of really important to assess all of those things. And there aren't simple risk factors or there isn't a simple algorithm that we can that we can kind of go through. We just have to find out exactly what's going on for each individual young person. That makes sense. And then are there any additional risk factors for psychosis? Yeah, so psychosis is slightly different, I would say. We often see psychosis in young people who've been exposed to trauma. So that's always something that's important to ask about. It's also more common in urban populations. So when we think about psychosis, we often see it in the highly urbanised areas. And it, it can be higher in migrants. So again, that might be related to trauma or might be related to something about the environmental factors. The other thing, of course, that we think about is drugs and substance misuse. So it's really important to ask about drug use and substance misuse because we can see drug-induced psychosis or the risks of developing psychosis if you use cannabis is higher. So I think it's about like two to four times higher. So we often ask about substances, which we would ask in any situation anyway. And moving on now to presentation of these disorders, what are some of the typical features of these disorders in children and young people? So I guess starting first with anxiety and depression. Okay, so if we think about depression first, so the kind of most obvious feature is that low mood, but that might also present as irritability or withdrawal or just stopping doing normal activities. So anhedonia, so that kind of like feeling of just not wanting to do the things that you normally do or not getting enjoyment out of the things that you normally do. We also would always ask about changes in appetites and that can go both ways. So people might stop eating and lose weight or they might be eating more, comfort eating. And, and again, same with sleep. So sometimes people sleep less. And sometimes you find people are sleeping much more. They're just lying in bed, can't face going out and doing their, their normal things. The other things that are really important to ask about are how they feel towards themselves. So you'll sometimes get things like guilt or worthlessness or hopelessness. And they may not be able to think about the future. So a, a good question is, is thinking about what they might want to do in the future if they're able to answer that question. And the other really important thing that we always ask about is thoughts about suicide and self-harm, just making sure that we're thinking about risk because those are really common in, in young people. And I guess thinking about that kind of holistic assessment, just making sure that we are asking about any potential triggers, which sometimes there are, sometimes 
there aren't. So sometimes depression is very contextual. So it might be in relation to bereavement or a loss of, of some kind. And it's important to ask the young person because things that we might think are not that important or might not seem that important to us as adults can be very important to, to young people. So particularly things around peer relationships or romantic relationships can can be really quite devastating to young people. And does presentation differ to how an adult with depression might present? And does it vary with according to the age of the child? So will a younger child present differently to a teenager? Yeah, I th- that's a good question. I think with younger children, you often see more of an irritability. The younger children might be more tearful, but we sometimes see tearfulness in, in the older group as well. And I guess as children become closer to adulthood, they they reflect adults a bit more closely and you might see more of an adult picture. Definitely that lability of mood we see more commonly. So they might change mood like a bit more quickly or might be angry like, and that might be directed particularly at parents or people close to them. So, yeah, that I think those are probably the main differences. I guess the other thing to think about is alcohol and substance misuse when thinking about mood as well, because that can have a really significant impact. And then what about anxiety? What are some of the typical presenting features of that? So anxiety is not one single presentation, so it can be a range of, of different presentations. So you might get a generalised picture, say that would be a child who was kind of worried about lots of different things and worried a lot of the time. So they might talk about being worried a lot of the time and about lots of of different things, like it might be school, it might be things at home, it might be going out. Or the anxiety might be a bit more specific, so you might see a separation anxiety. So it might be a child who starts refusing to go to school because they're they're anxious about the separation, particularly we see that when they're younger. We can also see it in older children as well. There are some anxieties which are kind of like developmentally appropriate or they might be quite short-lived. So things like fear of strangers or fear of the dark might be developmentally appropriate. So there's kind of generalised anxieties and specific anxieties. So those those specific anxieties might be more like phobias, so very excessive fear of spiders, for example, or something like that. And again, we see those very commonly and they might not need treatment from us. So they can be simple or complex and it can be situational or not situational. So it's about doing that assessment and finding out what's going on for that specific child. And the other type of anxiety disorder that you see is panic disorder, which is when a child would have panic attacks, which are those kind of classic heart racing, shallow breathing, completely overwhelming feelings of of anxiety, which again can kind of come out of the blue and may happen several times a day. They may be triggered by something specific or they may not be. So we're kind of thinking about generalised anxiety, specific anxieties or panic. And how often do the two go hand in hand, so depression and anxiety? Are they are they linked? If you have depression, are you more likely to have anxiety? Or Yes. And, and there are some people who think that the two are completely interlinked and you don't get depression without anxiety or vice versa. I'm not sure that I would... I would go that far, but we frequently see depression and anxiety occurring together. Again, you see sort of different symptoms at different 
ages, same with those like the preschool, younger children. They might be like very clingy. They might not want to leave their parents. They might be tearful. And then the the kind of early childhood, you may also see those symptoms, but you might see other things like the anger outbursts and then wetting the bed and things like that. So the symptoms can be a little bit non-specific and might take a bit of unpicking to find out exactly what's going on. And the other thing that's really important to remember in in this sort of childhood group that we don't necessarily see in the older children is somatic symptoms. So we often see headaches or stomach aches in this group, which may actually be about them being anxious or down or depressed. So yeah, it, it does sometimes take a little bit of unpicking and we often see those things coming together. And what about presentation of psychotic disorders? Okay, so psychosis presents in quite a different way, I'd say, to depression and anxiety, although we sometimes get what we call a prodromal phase, which is this phase before the the florid psychotic episode. And that prodromal phase is a is a sort of marked withdrawal from social activities, from education. Often those people are not holed up in their bedroom, they don't speak to to people. And it's it's a that can appear or presents in quite a similar way to a mood disorder. But when somebody's psychotic, they're often, and my experience with with children is that they will they will talk about their delusions and hallucinatory experiences fairly openly. So they will talk about people trying to hurt them or get them. So it can present as quite a highly anxious state, but often they will be hearing voices and those voices will will be saying things which are really unpleasant or disturbing to them. Or they might they might just have a sense of something being wrong. So it's quite a complex condition. It presents with unusual ways of thinking. So if somebody is psychotic, it can be quite hard to follow their train of thoughts. So that's that kind of thought disordered presentation. And it can be quite hard to understand exactly what's going on for that for that young person. And I think if you're having those sorts of feelings that you can't quite understand what's going on, you should be thinking about psychosis in your differential diagnoses. It can present in in delays in language or motor skills when in the very young children. And one of the things that I read when I was researching this podcast was that it can present with more negative symptoms so that the kind of effects on thinking and the withdrawal but I have to say from my clinical experience that hasn't been what I've seen I've generally seen young people who are quite floridly psychotic and talking about being chased or affected or people trying to get them and and then being very anxious about those experiences and they often have the auditory hallucinations where they're hearing voices telling them to, to do things or tell them to hurt themselves or not eat and things like that. So my experience is slightly different from what I've read about, about psychosis in children and young people. So we've talked now quite a lot about the features that might make you suspect one of these conditions. How do you make a formal diagnosis so for formal diagnoses for actually anxiety, depression and psychosis, we generally use the diagnostic manuals or we would use the validated questionnaires quite often. So 
In terms of the diagnostic manuals, we would use DSM-5, which is the American diagnostic manual, which essentially gives you a list of signs and symptoms, and then they have to meet a certain number of criteria. In the UK, we tend to use ICD-10 and ICD-11. It's just coming into the fall, so we use those. In terms of some of the screening questionnaires and tools for depression, I tend to use the RCADs, which you can get online, and it gives you a breakdown of the different types of anxiety. And you can get an Excel spreadsheet and put in the scores and get get your numbers out, which is quite a helpful way of diagnosing because you get an understanding of whether it's a separation or anxiety or a generalised picture. The NICE guidelines for depression recommend the KIDISADS and the CAPA, which is the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Assessment. And for psychosis, it's generally a clinical diagnosis. So it's about doing a, a full assessment and eliciting the symptoms of delusions, hallucinations, disordered thinking or the negative symptoms. And with psychosis, when would you be thinking about investigating to exclude organic pathology? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you need to have excluded organic pathology before you think about a diagnosis of psychosis. And again, there's different schools of thought. So some people think that everybody should be getting scan of the head to exclude any organic pathology. And I think the the most important thing, obviously, is to exclude meningitis and encephalitis. So you would be thinking about bloods, a scan of the brain and an LP, I think, as as routine. Because psychosis is fairly unusual in children, you can't really exclude the organic causes clinically. So you have to do the investigations to make sure that you've ruled that out. And then now moving on to management. What are the principles of management for all of these conditions? Okay, so for depression and anxiety, we use a sort of stepped care model. So essentially, it's thinking about how severe the condition is and then choosing the appropriate management plan. For the mild condition, so if we think about mild depression, a lot of the treatment can come from, for example, colleges or what we call tier two organisations. So we're thinking about kind of supportive counselling, supportive therapeutic options. There's lots of evidence now for digital cognitive behavioural therapy. So there are apps such as Keith, which are really popular and actually have really good outcomes. So for those those children who have mild depression, we can go for those sorts of options, certainly as a first step. We wouldn't be thinking about medication in that group. But once children start getting in this sort of like moderate to severe range, we're then thinking about a more formalised psychotherapy. There's lots of three-letter acronyms, which I think they probably are for all of medicine, but we're thinking about, say, cognitive behavioural therapy. So thinking about connecting people's thoughts and feelings and activities, or we're thinking about sometimes family therapy or other attachment-based therapies or some psychodynamic psychotherapy. So there's lots of different types of therapeutic approaches that we can take. And in terms of medication, we generally don't use medication without a psychotherapeutic approach. So we'd use the two together and the best evidence that we've got is that medication and psychotherapy work best together. And for medication, we generally use their SSRI medications. 
And the one with the best evidence is fluoxetine, but we sometimes use sertraline. And we tend to see a good outcome in about two thirds of patients. And then the remaining third, we have to go back and start thinking about other treatment options and more complicated options. And for anxiety, again, it's it's fairly similar. So again, we've got this kind of stepped care model for the mild symptoms you can maybe, sometimes parents can manage that by themselves with, you know, some psychoeducation. If they read some books about helping children manage their anxiety, that can be sufficient. And then again, it's like supportive counselling for the, the milder cases that can be delivered in colleges and via the sort of tier two organisations. And then it gets kind of more and more intensive. And again, we'd be thinking about a cognitive behavioural therapy, usually for anxiety and trying to help children tolerate their anxiety and start facing their fears in a kind of stepped way. And it's the same medication as well. So the SSRI medication. So usually fluoxetine or surgery would be the first line. And with these medications, do we have a good understanding of how they might work in depression and anxiety, what the pharmacological basis is? That's a really good question because it's quite controversial at the moment and there's been lots of papers about not using this chemical imbalance theory as a way of explaining how they work. I think it's safe to say that we know they increase the levels of serotonin and probably the other neurotransmitters like catecholamines, but I don't think we really know exactly how they do that. Also, it's quite controversial, but I think there's lots of evidence that shows that they do work, but I think we just have to be careful of how we explain the way they work. Yeah, careful with attributing the mechanism. Exactly. I think it just becomes a bit too simplistic and then we can be criticised about just being too reductive in our approach. Mm, Absolutely. Finally, most of the listeners of this podcast will be general paediatricians. So I was hoping we could touch a little bit on when specialist services should be involved. So when you should be thinking about a referral to CAMS for a young person or a child presenting with any of the conditions we've discussed today? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think one of the difficulties that we've got in CAMS is that we just don't have capacity or resource to see enough young people or the demand completely outstrips the supply of of the services that we have available. I think as a general paediatrician, it's really helpful if you can have an understanding of how to treat and manage at least mild depression and mild anxiety, and maybe have a list of resources, say things like Cooth or Young Minds can be really helpful. When children or young people are veering into that moderate range, or when you're starting to think that they need the specialist psychotherapy or medication, then I think referral to CAMS is appropriate. I think it's been difficult over the past few years because the thresholds have really increased and it is really difficult to get to see a CAMS psychiatrist. But I think the other thing is as soon as there's any risk involved, so if you're thinking about suicidal ideation where people are planning or have got a really clear plan and there's an intent to act, then, you know, urgent referral and and A&E. I think it's just about understanding what the thresholds are and knowing when it's appropriate to offer psychoeducation and self-help, knowing when to refer to CAMS and then knowing when to, to send to, to A&E, which is sometimes appropriate for, for patients with really serious risk problems. 
And then I think the other thing you said earlier was that any child presenting with psychotic symptoms should be referred to as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think psychosis needs to be treated as as soon as possible. There's lots of evidence which shows the sooner you start treatment with an antipsychotic, the better the outcome. So I think any sort of worry about psychosis should be referred to to CAM straight away, if not to A&E, if, if you're concerned about risk. Just to finish, we've got the standard quickfire questions that we ask to all our guests. So firstly, are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? Now, I know that you're not a paediatrician and would have never sat these exams being a psychiatrist, but I don't know, do you have any insight on how it could come up in in a paediatrics exam? I guess what would be important for general paediatricians to know? So the thing that I come across with the paediatricians a lot is the HEADS assessment, which I actually love. So that's an acronym which covers home, education and employment, activities, drugs and drinking, sex, self-harm, depression, suicide and safety. So there's three S's on the end of it. And that that seems to come up a lot at the Royal College of Paediatrics. So I, I think that's a really good acronym to be using when assessing for low mood and depression in young people and also actually for all mental health assessments for, for children and young people. I guess the other thing that I thought about was the evidence base for SSRIs and we've talked about some of the controversy around that but there is a really good evidence base for fluoxetine particularly and so that's the one we always recommend. I think it's probably useful to know about that one. And then I guess the third one I think about is risk assessments. That's something that always comes up in psychiatry exams and I assume it's pretty important for paediatricians as well. Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend? So my favourite book on the teenage brain is the Sarah Jane Blakemore book, which is called Inventing Ourselves, The Secret Life of the Teenage Brain, which I just think is a, it's a brilliant book for talking about how teenagers change in their perception of risk and how peers become so much more important to teenagers. So I really like that as a sort of general resource for thinking about teenagers. For for depression, anxiety and psychosis, I'm going to be a bit boring, go nice guidelines, because I think they're the things which are most helpful in terms of thinking about assessment and management and my experience of exams as they often come up. The other place, which is a really good place to look, is the CAM website. They have loads of really good articles on mental health, which I found to be pretty approachable. Okay, great. That's ACAM? Yes, A-C-A-M-H. Perfect. Thank you. Finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from today? So my first one is talk to the young people or talk to the young person who's in front of you. We often will go talk to somebody and it will be the first time they've had an opportunity to talk. Relationships are really key to psychiatry and mental health. But I think the other part of that is to it can take a bit of time for a young person to trust you. So just be aware that they might not open up in the first conversation. Don't be afraid of the difficult areas. So things like sexuality, substance misuse and relationships, like you just have to ask those questions and get used to the initial discomfort. And then my third take home would be, don't forget about the behavioral changes. So those somatic symptoms, so sometimes the persistent stomach aches or headaches or a sign that there's something mental health going on rather than physical health. Great. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. That was really helpful. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode 
and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.